I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. Following is a standalone teaching to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on April 21st, 2019, Easter Sunday. Now, ordinarily at Van City Church, uh, we teach through the Bible. We approach the complex treasure trove of writings that we call the scriptures. And like archaeologists, we do our best to carefully mine out the riches within. We work to do the hard work of biblical exegesis and theology and academia. And we work to apply all of that to the lives of modern disciples of Jesus, which is in our context, our small family in the here and now. But in the ancient world, Readily available copies of the Bible for individual use were unheard of. Most villages had a single volume of the Hebrew Scriptures, and it remained at the local synagogue for shared, supervised use. So pen and paper were also in short supply. So in order to transmit the sacred Scriptures, the people of God told stories. It's called the oral tradition. Tonight, on our most significant of celebrations, I want to tell a story And our story begins in a garden, the crisp dew of a morning that has not yet known discord or decay, all of life flourishing, the graceful antelope leap by unpolluted rivers like glass, they drink their fill before nestling beside a feral lion, and together they share a meal of figs in the warm grass and are satisfied. And over the scene, the great and glorious artist He moves his mighty hands like a maestro's baton, and from his imagination spin spiraling galaxies. He spools out stars ablaze like lanterns in the darkness of space. Flowering plants and thrumming insects, lumbering bears and swimming reptiles. But the artist is more than creator. He is the origin and source of the most powerful force in all the universe. The creator, God, is love. So it comes as little surprise that from the overflowing lavishness of his great love, that God crafts for himself company. Men and women, kings and queens, made to rule and reign over the wild and good world. Trusting God trusting his decree of goodness, we were to fill and subdue creation. God did not see fit to rule from the intimidating tower of an inaccessible throne. He stepped down, his feet warm in the grass, arm in arm with his kings and his queens, and with excitement he commissioned them, join me, trust me, make something out of all this, something good. And for a season, we loved him back. We joined in the goodness of his work, the fulfilling freedom of our vocation, until we were soured by our pride and led astray by evil. On a serpentine tongue came the questions, must God be in charge? Is he truly good? Ought we not to rule ourselves? And then came the accusations, God is lying, he isn't truly good. We can do better. And so the garden fell. But as the garden fell, God cried out a promise over the crumbling goodness of Eden. This will not be the end of the story. Another king will come. 
He will silence the serpent's tongue. He will crush the evil that has poisoned creation. And with God's promise echoing out over the scene, the garden collapsed. Black toxins clouded the once glass-like river. The lion tore the flesh of the antelope. The fig was filled with wasps and decayed in the soil. Where once the vocation of humans was all the electricity of creative energy and the joy of hard work, now work was often painful and joyless and laborious and unrewarding. Enmity grew like briars between humans whose potential collided with an ending, and the ending was called death. Now the idyllic peacefulness of the garden was usurped by violence and tragedy, hatefulness and corruption, and in the end, death and decay. And as the lion wet his lips with the blood of the antelope, so we, humanity, wet our lips with the blood of our brothers and sisters and with the blood of creation itself. A downward spiral into chaos, murder, adultery, political corruption, sexual abuse, just pages beyond the garden. And in the story, these fallen kings and queens lament, fists raised to a seemingly indifferent sky. God, why don't you do something about this awful mess? And God might have wiped the slate of this failed experiment clean. He might have answered our pleas to eradicate evil by eradicating us. But the artist is more than creator. He is love. So God, this personal being at the center of the universe called Yahweh, who is at his very core relational love, initiates a rescue plan. And out of his relational love, he again beckons to his human collaborators, come, let us put together these broken pieces. I am not yet prepared to abandon this dream of mine. The heart of God, broken, inflamed with compassion for his people, for his creation. He burns with desire to see evil eradicated, to see goodness and justice reign over his masterwork. But the barbed tendrils of evil have so burrowed themselves in the heart of humanity that to uproot evil would mean destroying that which God loves so deeply, us, his fallen kings and his fallen queens. Because like visitors in God's museum, we have beheld God's masterpiece for only moments before we set to work tearing it apart with our bare hands, hurling upon it buckets of black ink, dousing it with spit, defiling it with excrement. All of us, with contributions great and small, participate in the vandalism of God's desired good for us and for the world. In our clawing and clamoring up the backs of others to do ourselves good, We have brought our appointed rule to staggering disrepair. And through it all, God opted to love us anyway. So, Yahweh decides, my desire is to destroy evil without destroying humanity, though they themselves do evil. On a day in human history, God spoke to people again, as he had done before, as he had done in the beginning, and he made with them a covenant A promise like marriage vows, I will love you, I will begin my rescue mission in you, and as I said, the snake will be crushed and I will rescue the world. And time wore on. So imagine this, another morning, 
the crisp dew of a morning that has known discord and decay and knows them well, all of life feeding off of and destroying itself in the cycle of sin and death. A priest of Israel steps before an altar and, with a heavy heart, begins the sacrifice. In it, a blameless animal, a frightened lamb, will be slaughtered as a powerful symbol, a reminder of the great cost of evil, the toll that it takes, the debt that it creates, that evil always brings death. And somehow in this profound and symbolic gesture, the guilt of humanity, the vandalism of God's goodness will be transferred to this shivering animal. Its blood will pour out as a sobering visual of its very life draining away. And Israel remembers that evil is costly, the fracturing of relationships destructive, the power of death unforgiving. And this priest will wander the temple with guilt-laden spirits, sprinkling the animal's blood as a symbol of life washing away the horrible consequences of death. And yet, the cycle carries on. More kings, more queens, more evil, some better than others, but always more suffering, more sin, more death. Eventually, like the garden, the land of Israel itself falls. They had forgotten the poor, the oppressed, the foreigner. They had begun to participate in and even institutionalize systems of injustice. No longer did they bring their sacrificial lambs with heavy hearts, but as empty ritual, the obligation of blood with no thought of the cost. And Yahweh pleaded with his people from the mouths of prophets, remember the covenant, the marriage vows, and Israel would not listen. And into the darkness of their sin, a prophet called Isaiah spoke of something that had not, had not yet happened, but would, the promised snake-crushing king. Just as Yahweh promised in the crumbling garden, he will, Isaiah said, deal with evil once and for all. But hear this, he added, this king is not who we expect him to be. The promised king will become a servant, and he will suffer and he will die. And Isaiah's words fell on deaf ears. Though Yahweh warned and pleaded and reminded them of their call to be kings and queens to do good, in the face of compounding evil, Yahweh, his heart heavy with grief and broken by the unfaithfulness of his covenant people, allowed Israel to be overtaken and destroyed, driven from their homes, no land, no king, no temple, Everything breaking and broken. And time wore on. Imagine this, another morning. The crisp dew of a morning that has now known discord and decay and knows them well, all of life feeding off of and destroying itself in the cycle of sin and death. And in a nowhere corner of the empire, in a nobody household, God speaks, this time, to a poor teenage girl. And through a messenger, God tells this young woman, the king is coming, the suffering servant, the one who will confront and deal with evil, the one who will rescue. And you, he tells this girl, will be his mom. And so the king arrives, and his name is Yeshua, Jesus. His name literally means Yahweh rescues but he's also called Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
But this king, this God with us, does not arrive in a chariot of fire or as a sword-wielding warrior or as an intangible cosmic force. He arrives as a human baby born to poor teenagers in a cave. And he grows and he learns. And finally, when the time is right, he initiates his rescue mission proper. The mission to eradicate evil, bring about justice and goodness for all of humanity, all of the cosmos. And he does this as a teacher. He wanders ancient Palestine with dust-covered feet that bring the good news of a new king and a new king, or gospel. And as the prophets once promised throughout the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus heals the sick. He brings good news to the poor. He works in the ways of justice and mercy. This is what it looks like when God becomes king. And in this strange and unexpected way, a splintering fissure appears in the way things once were, a crack, nearly imperceptible, but spreading. And through it shines a light, because this king, this long-promised, long-awaited rescuer of Israel, is actually more than just a man. He walks upon the waves of the sea. He forgives sins. He is, I am, Yahweh in flesh and blood, God with us. But the old story repeats itself. On a serpentine tongue come the questions and then accusations. Must God be in charge? Is he truly good? Ought we not to rule ourselves? God is lying. He's not really good. We can do better. And so this Jesus, this rescuing king, is shackled and dragged into the darkness of an evil night. And he is scourged and beaten and mocked, berated by insults. They hit him, hurl insults at him, spit on him, and the dream falls apart. This would-be king is brought to humiliating ruin, naked, nailed to a cross, the most agonizing instrument of execution the Roman Empire had to offer. He was to be king, and now he dies like a common criminal, stripped naked and bleeding before his mom, his friends, his followers. He was to be great and mighty, but here he hangs, wheezing, shivering, barely maintaining consciousness. There will be no kingdom, and there will be no king. And as the lion wets his lips with the blood of the antelope, so we, humanity, wet our lips with the blood of our brothers and sisters, with the blood of creation, and now with the blood of this would-be king, God, with us. His body split open. The blood of life runs out as it did from the slaughtered lamb on the altar, a reminder of the great cost of evil, the toll it takes, and the debt that it always creates. And somehow, in this moment, the scriptures say that the guilt of humanity, the vandalism of God's goodness, was transferred to this shivering, sacrificial lamb. And his blood pours out, and he remembers that evil is costly, that the fracturing of relationships is destructive, the power of death unforgiving. His tattered body cold and lifeless, he was wrapped in the linen of the grave, and he was tucked in the darkness of a tomb. There will be no kingdom. There will be no king. The king is dead. Until, in the darkness of the tomb, when all hope was lost, beneath his grave linens, God began to mend the broken body of Jesus. 
and a heart that had been stilled for days trembled in his chest and then beat and then beat again. And a warmth began to spread through what was moments prior a corpse. And terrified, the old snake, the one who leads the entire world astray, fastened his grip of death around Jesus and found he could hold it no longer. And the once unbreakable chains of death melted away like wax before a flame. And though the evil of history had bore down on him when he died, Jesus sat up and the evil fell away, a withering wisp of ash disappearing in the air around him. And a stone had been set before the tomb, a stone put in place actually to keep grave robbers out, but the stone could not keep the risen Jesus in. And as Jesus crossed the threshold of a grave he was meant to inhabit until his lifeless body was dust, the old curse was broken forever. The king is alive. The kingdom has come. And the movement of Jesus from that day on has always been marked by belief in resurrection. The resilient battle cry of what God did for Jesus, he will do for all of humanity and for creation itself. And note, not an afterlife. There are all sorts of takes on the afterlife in the ancient world. But resurrection was very different because resurrection is not the idea that there is something else after and beyond all this. The afterlife is an ellipsis fastened to the final statement of death. Yes, we die, but dot, 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 then we'll go elsewhere. There's something else. That is not the story of resurrection. Resurrection is not an ellipsis. It is a confrontational no to the final statement of death. No, death, you will not have the final word. God is not done with me not done with the body he knit together in my mother's womb, not done with a world he made good, not done with plants and animals and families and art and culture and community. So whereas the afterlife confronts death and says, yes, but, resurrection defies death and says, no. You will not have your way. King Jesus has made sure of that. This broken, hurting world will not end in ruin, nor the darkness of death, but in the triumph of resurrection and us with it. This belief was so central to the early movement of Jesus that they began carving grave sites with the single defiant Latin word resurgum, I shall rise again. This grave, only temporary. What the Father God has done for his son Jesus, he will do for you and I and the entire cosmos. Today, if you poll the average professing American Christian on the street about a theology of life after death, you'll likely hear something like this. When they die, the soul of one who follows Jesus leaves their lifeless body and goes to be with God in heaven. And this isn't entirely untrue per se, but it's only part of the New Testament story. In theology, we actually call it the intermediate state, and with good reason, because it's the middle of a process. The New Testament teaches that all disciples of Jesus have believed for hundreds of years that yes, after a disciple of Jesus dies, the immaterial part of their personhood goes to be with God. We have no idea what that's like, but in some sense, that's what happens. But then the story goes on. Eventually, Jesus will usher in what is called the renewal of all things. 
He will gather up the molecules of every dead and decomposed body, every pile of ashes, the dust of ancient skeletons, and he will reform and renew our bodies, joining with them the immaterial part of us that has waited with God. And then King Jesus will do the exact same act of cosmic revival to all of creation. Here on earth, not away someplace else in heaven, God will repair, not abandon his good world. For more than two millennia, disciples of Jesus, the world over have been united under the banner of resurrection. I shall rise again. That this parade of darkness and despair is coming to an end. And we know this because of King Jesus. And we will defy the snake until the king destroys him once and for all. Where now our world is marred by animosity and discord and racism and sexism and poverty and injustice and cancer, child abuse, sin, suffering, despair, death. The resurrection of Jesus, a single moment in human history, is the promise that these things will come to a conclusive end. So today we celebrate something much more than a miracle that a man who was dead came back to life. Today, we remember and celebrate that the story does not end in death, that the collective tears of humanity will be wiped away by the hands of Jesus. The king is alive. The kingdom has come. The tomb is empty. The snake is crushed. And this calls for a celebration. So what I'd like to do, if you guys are up for it, is having said all that, now I'd like to just read from the scriptures, the story of Easter. Um, You don't have to read along. You can just sit back and kind of meditate on these words if you like. So just clear off your lap, get comfortable for a second. Um, Peter, if you don't mind bringing the lights down just a tiny bit. You can close your eyes if that helps you picture of the story better. You don't have to, whatever works for you. But just sit and listen as we remember the story of Jesus. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 23 and chapter 24. The scriptures say, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. Jesus of Nazareth has been brought under arrest secretly in the night. They blindfolded him and demanded him, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he replied, You say that I am. And they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard from his own lips. And then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, Roman governor. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. 
Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Pilate cried, or called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was teaching the people to rebellion. I have examined him in the presence in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, who sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us instead. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they, came, when they came to the place called the Skull, Golgotha, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Verse 44 of Luke chapter 23 says, it was now about noon and the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. Verse 50 says, Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from a Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' dead body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen and cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut into rock, one in which no one had, not yet, no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women had come with Jesus from Galilee, followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Verse, chapter 24 of Luke's gospel says this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. 
he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, Jesus' closest friends, and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others who were with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? (laughs) Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. And Jesus said to them, How foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, the Old Testament, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about that, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and, startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? (laughs) They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. 
Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. To all nations beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And for hundreds and hundreds of years after this story, disciples of Jesus have been continued, continually referred to as witnesses of these things. Let's pray together and invite God's Spirit to come and speak as we continue to worship and celebrate. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.